In a recent BBC article titled, Rainbows as Signs of Thank You, Hope, and Solidarity, Gaia Vince writes, rainbows are a symbol of hope in many cultures, a promise of better times to come. However, the hope expressed in a rainbow is frequently tinged with pathos. According to Irish legend, the end of a rainbow marks where leprechauns have buried a pot of gold they stole from the Vikings. But since you can only see a rainbow if you are far away from it, and they appear to move as you move, the promise remains elusive. Somewhere over the rainbow, dreams come true, and troubles melt like lemon drops, as Judy Garland sang in the Wizard of Oz musical. But this magical place is unattainable, she laments. Birds fly over the rainbow. Why then, oh why, can't I? Rainbows have also been spiritually important to Western cultures. For the ancient Greeks and Romans, the arch of color was the visible form of the fleet-footed messenger goddess Iris. For Buddhists, it is possible to become a spiritual rainbow body. The rainbow symbolizes the higher state or the highest state that can be reached before nirvana or enlightenment. For some cultures, rainbows are not themselves gods, but bridges between their world and ours, a pathway leading to the light and the heavens. Some Indonesian societies see a rainbow as a bridge used by soul boats as they journey to the spiritual realm, for instance. Whereas in Norse mythologies, a rainbow called Bifrost was the burning bridge connecting Asgard and Midgard, the kingdoms of gods and men, respectively. In Japanese myth, the rainbow is the floating bridge of heaven on which the male and female creators of the world descended to create land from the ocean of chaos. Hindu legend has the rainbow as an archer's bow used by Indra, the god of thunder and war, who shoots arrows of lightning. Pre-Islamic Arabic culture also believed the rainbow to be a divine bow for firing arrows. For the Chinese, it was a crack in the sky made by five colored stones cast by the mother goddess Nuwa. Mayan culture believed the arch was a crown worn by Ixchel, a mother goddess associated with a jaguar and with rain. Armenians believed it was the belt of Tyr, the sun god, whereas for the Cherokee, it was the hem of the sun's coat. While some cultures marvel at and worship rainbows, others fear them. Some Mesoamerican societies believe they are bad omens and hide their children away when they see them. The Karens of Burma believe it is a dangerous demon that eats children, whereas Bulgarian legend has it that walking under a rainbow causes someone to change genders. More recently, the diversely colored rainbow has been used to reflect diversity in sexuality, becoming the international symbol of the gay movement. Gilbert Baker, an artist and drag queen, first created the rainbow flag in 1978 and has been used extensively to depict pride, defiance, and also hope for acceptance, respect, and equal rights for this marginalized group. As you can see, the rainbow has meant different things to different groups, peoples, cultures, and movements. But as with all things, we ask the question, what does the Bible teach us about what the rainbow stands for? That's what we want to take a look at as we reclaim the rainbow's biblical significance and meaning as we continue our study in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis in our series, When Giants Walk the Earth. We pick up our study in Genesis chapter 9, looking at verses 1 to 29. 
So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 9 as we take a look at verses 1 to 29. In this so-called rainbow chapter, we're going to learn three things that God values and how we are to respond. Perhaps these three things God values will be the values we as Christians associate with and identify with the rainbow as we seek to reclaim the rainbow significance and meaning from a secular world. I read now Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. As Noah and his family left the ark, the Bible tells us that God blessed them and commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, and repopulate the earth. To help them in this endeavor, we're told in verse 2 that all the animals on the land, air, and sea would be given to mankind to have dominion over. Further, in verse 3, mankind is allowed to eat any kind of food from all the animals. Later on in history, the Mosaic Law was given to the Israelites on Mount Sinai, and the people of Israel were prohibited from eating certain kinds of animals as part of a test of their obedience. But until that time when the law was given, all mankind could enjoy eating all animals. The Mosaic Law's restrictions for eating certain kinds of animals were then removed by God for the church age in which we currently live in. We read about this truth in Acts chapter 10, Romans chapter 14, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and throughout the book of Galatians. So we can again eat every type of animal. If you ever come across a book, article, or video that says Christians are prohibited from eating certain kinds of food or animals, you know it's not biblical or they're trying to apply the inapplicable Mosaic laws on us today. This change in non-prohibition to prohibition and then to non-prohibition of eating certain animals also illustrates that the unchanging God chooses and can choose to operate differently at different times in human history and in the future to bring about His purpose in certain dispensations or time periods. This is similar to how the same parents will treat the same child differently from when he was a toddler to when he becomes a teenager, with different approaches to discipline and expectations of responsibilities based on the child's growth and maturity level. This realization can help us understand that God has not changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is just that He approaches how He deals with mankind differently based on a particular period of human history, such as us living now in the age of grace versus living in an age of the Mosaic Law. This understanding will help us in interpreting the Scriptures. Now, I want to point out that there is one prohibition given by God as it relates to food in verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Here we read about a clear prohibition for mankind about eating the blood of animals. Note that this prohibition was given even before the institution of the Mosaic Law, where it was also prohibited then. Acts chapter 15 also seems to point to this prohibition continuing to take effect, even after the entire Mosaic Law no longer applied to Christians. However, some would argue that here in Genesis, the prohibition 
is against specifically eating raw, uncooked blood. But that cooked blood is allowable based on some Jewish interpretations, and therefore certainly allowed now for Christians to eat. You see, many cultures around the world have dishes that is made primarily from the blood of animals, like blood sausages eaten in the U.S., or blood pudding eaten in the U.K. and Ireland, dinaguan in the Philippines, blood pancakes popular in Sweden and in Finland, blood tofu in China, or cabidella eaten in Portugal, and many other dishes. So the question that is often asked to me is, can we eat these dishes today? Listen carefully. My personal conviction is no, based on my interpretation of the Scriptures. But I'm not dogmatic about this issue, and have pastor friends who disagree with me and enjoy these dishes with a clear conscience. So I encourage you to study this issue further to see what the Scriptures teach. If your conscience bothers you, then it is better for you to abstain from eating blood. Remember that as Christians, while we have the freedom to do many things, we can also choose not to do them because of the principles of liberty and love, so as not to stumble others and present a great testimony to the world as Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8 remind us. And can I just note that the red juice that comes out of your rare steak is not blood. It is a combination of water and a protein found in muscle tissue called myoglobin. Myoglobin carries oxygen to the muscle and contains a red pigment, which is why muscle tissue is red. The iron in myoglobin turns red when it is exposed to oxygen. As a steak is cooked, the myoglobin darkens, which is why the more well done the meat is, the grayer it looks. So even the reddest of steaks is actually bloodless. That's why while I personally do not eat dinaguan, I enjoy my steaks medium and medium rare. But more important than the food implication is the reason behind this prohibition which shows the heart of God and what He values. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. The reason God imposed this restriction of eating blood was to remind mankind of the sanctity and the sacredness of human life. It is clear from these verses that human life is extremely valuable to God because every person is created in His image. Human beings are unique in all of God's creations as we talked about in our study of Genesis chapter 2 because we are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. The value of human life is so high in God's perspective that we're told in verse 6, the taking of another's life in murder could result in the punishment of death for the murderer. Here the Bible tells us that capital punishment or the death penalty as an ultimate punishment for the crime of murder is allowed. Of course, the circumstances under which it takes effect would have to be fleshed out by the laws of the country. While you may disagree with this position, I'm simply pointing out the biblical basis for capital punishment when someone takes another's life. Regardless of your position on this matter of capital punishment for the crime of murder, what is important to remember from these verses is that God greatly values the sanctity of human life.
This is why for Christians, the highly charged issue of abortion should not be a rights issue, but instead it should be an issue about the preservation of life. While the medical community and the legal community continue to argue about when personhood technically begins in the womb, verses like Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 and Luke chapter 1 verse 41 speaks to the fact of life beginning at conception. Science bears this out as advancements in ultrasound technology show us that life in the womb is detectable as early as 8 to 12 days post-conception. Therefore, followers of Christ and those who hold to the truths of the Bible should be against abortions. However, what about abortions in the case of rape or incest or when the life of the mother is at risk? Would God allow abortions in such instances? Now, we don't have time to wade into these heady issues in detail in this message as there are many biblical, ethical, emotional, and medical issues to consider as well as existing laws. But can I just mention that rape and incest are terrible, sinful, evil acts. However, the child in the womb is innocent and precious, and a viable solution to the issue could be to carry that child to full term and then giving that child up for adoption to an agency where many childless couples go to look for a child to adopt. In the case of the mother's life perhaps being at risk, then the mother should definitely consult medical professionals and prayerfully make a decision on what to do. But let me share with you a story if you've not heard it before. In 1985, Pam and Bob Tebow moved to the Philippines to serve as missionaries. While pregnant, Pam became ill with amoebic dysentery, which is usually transmitted from contaminated drinking water. She fell into a temporary coma and received strong drugs to combat the infection. Those drugs resulted in severe placental abruption in which the placenta detaches from the uterine wall. That condition can deprive the fetus of oxygen and other necessary elements. When it was discovered she was pregnant, doctors immediately stopped the drugs but said that the high doses of medicine had already damaged the fetus. Because they believed that the baby would not survive, doctors recommended an abortion to the Tebos so that Pam Tebow's life would not be risked. They thought I should have an abortion to save my life from the beginning all the way to the seventh month, Pam recounted. But Pam refused the abortion because of her faith. She prayed that she and her husband would have a healthy son. And so Pam Tebow went to Manila during her seventh month of pregnancy and remained under bed rest. On August 14th of 1987, she gave birth to Timothy Tebow. We were concerned at first because he was so malnourished, but he definitely made up for it, she said. Tim Tebow grew up to become a star quarterback at Nice High School. He won two national championships as quarterback of the Florida Gators. He won the Heisman Trophy as a sophomore, the first sophomore to win this award in the history of this award. He was chosen in the first round of the NFL draft, and he took the NFL Denver Broncos to the playoffs. My friends, if you're ever in a situation of having to consider an abortion, may God's wisdom be with you, and let me encourage you to choose life because the Bible teaches that God values the sanctity of all human life whether in or out of the womb. Now look with me at verse 7. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Verse 7 essentially repeats God's command to Noah in verse 1 
to be fruitful and multiply. And God can command this because He is the giver of life. He loves and values all life, even your life. So if any of you are going through a very difficult time and thinking about ending your life in suicide, know that that's never the solution. It should never be even considered as an option to escape your problems. Only God who gives life has the authority to take it away. Your life, my friends, is so precious and valuable to God, and you matter to Him. The God who gave you life is the God who desires to be with you and wants to help you through your problems in the land of the living. With the help of God who does the impossible, you will be able to overcome whatever you're going through with His help. So if you ever consider ending your life, know that God values you, He loves you, and if you're hurting deeply, reach out to a friend or even to the people in the church to talk with you. The Christian faith is a celebration of life. Our focus is not on death and dying because we place our trust in a living Savior. The hope and joy we have when we place our trust in Jesus Christ is that instead of worrying about death and dying, we are assured of life, eternal life. While there is sadness and grief when a Christian loved one passes because we will miss them, for the Christian who has departed from this earth when it is God's time, they are in the best of places in heaven with the Lord. That's why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because one who places their trust in Christ are assured of salvation and go to heaven where they no longer suffer what they have to temporarily endure here on earth. And this wonderful news about life, eternal life in Jesus Christ, is something we need to share. Now, putting it all together, we get our first biblical principle. Biblical principle number one. God values every human life. Therefore, we should embrace a culture of life and share the gospel. God values every human life. Therefore, we should embrace a culture of life and share the gospel. If God sees all human life as equally valued and precious in His sight, whether life in or out of the womb, humans living on all seven continents, or persons of every profession or social economic level, then we as His followers should also value the same thing as well. We embrace a culture of life by loving all people equally and showing care and compassion to those who are suffering and those in need. It is Christians who should champion basic human rights and care for all, knowing that while there will never be true equality on this side of heaven, the Bible teaches us to care for those who need help and to show the love of Christ. But the best way to celebrate life and uphold the culture of life in the midst of a culture of death is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, which brings life to a world who otherwise would have no hope because of sin, only death and destruction. Because each human life is precious to God, who in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, is described as not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He provides a way for everyone to be saved and have eternal life. God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of the world and to die for each person on this earth. To appropriate this gift of eternal life, each person simply has to place their trust in Jesus Christ and accept His free gift of salvation. And for the world to know this great truth of finding life when there's only death, 
we as Christians are given the responsibility to carry out the work of the Great Commission to everyone we come in contact with and in our sphere of influence. If we value all human life and love God as we say we do, then we should be fully motivated to share Jesus with everyone we know, from our classmates to our colleagues to our friends and family. Now, what is another thing that God values? Look with me at verses 8 to 18. I read now verses 8 to 11. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Here in these verses, we're told that God makes an unconditional covenant with Noah and the generations after him, a covenanted promise that he will never again destroy the earth with global floodwaters as he had just done because of the wickedness and sinfulness of mankind. But please note that these verses do not say that God will never judge the earth again for mankind's sin. There will be a time in the future when God's judgment for mankind's wickedness will come upon the earth for seven years in a period known as the Great Tribulation. But those judgments in the future will not entail a worldwide flood, and those judgments do not destroy every living thing on the earth. Now, why did God make this covenant with Noah and with mankind forever, with only Him taking all the responsibilities of this promise without any conditions on the part of man? We're not told in the Scriptures why this covenant is unconditional. The only reason we can surmise would be because of His love and grace. God's unconditional love and His sovereign grace are the basis of His reasons for instituting this unconditional covenant. But how would Noah and the people in the succeeding generations, even until today, come to know that God would keep His word and hold to His promise to never again destroy the world with a universal worldwide flood. Take a look with me at verses 12 to 18. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. The Bible tells us that God set the rainbow in the sky to serve as a reminder for both him and mankind of this unconditional covenant or promise that he would never again destroy the world with a global flood. Apparently, there had not been a rainbow prior to this time because it had not rained. As we have mentioned in our study of Genesis chapter 2, in verse 5 of that chapter, we're told it did not rain but that a water mist provided the necessary moisture for the world. How it all worked, we're not told, and we really don't know. 
Some have suggested that during the pre-flood times, the earth was surrounded with some sort of water canopy, but this is only a theory that cannot be proven through the biblical text. Whatever the case, now after the great flood, it would rain as part of the water cycle, and rainbows would appear in the sky to serve not only as a beautiful sight, but more importantly, as a reminder of God's promise to mankind. Now, for those of you who don't know how a rainbow works, here's a quick summary. Rainbows are caused by an optical phenomenon when sunlight enters water droplets, with the light slowing down and bending as it goes from air to the denser water. The light reflects off the inside of the droplets, separating into its component wavelengths or colors. When the light exits the water droplets, it makes a rainbow. A rainbow requires water droplets to be floating in the air. That's why we see them right after it rains. The sun must be behind you and the clouds cleared away from the sun for the rainbow to appear. Now, the reason I took the time to explain this is because what is written in Genesis chapter 9 about a rainbow in no way contradicts with the scientific explanation of how it works. The language used in chapter 9 uses the language of appearance from the perspective of mankind rather than a technical scientific explanation. And indeed, we see the rainbows in the clouds as these verses describe the rainbow because sunlight reflects off the water droplets from the rain clouds. Interestingly, the Hebrew word for rainbow is the same word used of a battle bow used with arrows. And visibly and figuratively, the bow or the rainbow is literally hung in the cloud as if to say God's judgment this round is over and there is now peace. And through these thousands of years since the promise was first made, God has kept His promise. There has never been another global flood that has destroyed the entire world. Christians who don't believe that God caused the global flood, but only a localized flood, would have a hard time interpreting this chapter because in the years between Noah's flood and now, there have been great floods that affected vast areas of land and killed many people and animals. Interpreting the flood described in Genesis chapter 7 and 8 as a localized flood would lead to the conclusion that God didn't keep His promise in Genesis chapter 9. But God has kept His word and there has never been another global flood since the global flood of Noah's day. And the rainbow after rain events is a reminder to us today that God continues to keep His Word. The fact that God keeps His promises show us that He greatly values truth, for His words are true. And here we draw out our second biblical principle, biblical principle number two. God values truth, for His words are true, and He keeps His promises. Therefore, we should also speak the truth. God values truth, for His words are true, and He keeps His promises. Therefore, we should also speak the truth. God's repeated statements to Noah that the rainbow would be a sign of His promise emphasize that His words can be trusted. It is as if God was saying to Noah and to us, You can hold me accountable to what I say because I speak only words of truth as I greatly value truth. Every time we see a rainbow, we should not only be reminded that God's worldwide judgment through a global flood will never come, but we should also be reminded that He is a promise-keeping God who speaks the truth and fulfills what He says He will do. If our God greatly values truth and integrity, 
then we as Christians should value truth just as much. In fact, Jesus, God Himself, said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus wanted His followers not to be ambiguous in their words, in the current slang, not to spin it, because we often spin it so much that it becomes a lie. Let the truth be told without spin, but in grace and love, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Christians should value truth because God values it, and that's why we did an entire series on the search for truth. Truth is important, and truth matters in this generation where finding the truth is getting harder and harder because all of the propaganda and the spin is to fit a world agenda and secular bias. God wanted His followers to value truth and always speak truth so that when we share the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, there would be no doubt by the world that what we share is true. You see, we are known as people who don't tell the truth. Then why would anyone in the world believe what we have to say, especially if it concerns Christ? Remember, truth is not just spoken. It's also lived out. A life lived out that doesn't match what we claim is not only called hypocrisy, it is a lie. We would be living out a lie if our lives don't match the truth we embrace. God values truth, and so should we, in words and action. Now look at me at verses 19 to 21. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. With the restarting of the human race after God's judgment on the earth for mankind's wickedness, one would have thought that the human race would have learned their lesson and strived to live lives of holiness. But as we will see, sin took hold relatively quickly after the flood, and we will see the compounding effects of sin. After Noah and his family left the ark, Noah took to planting as a farmer and planted a vineyard. He made wine from the grapes and drank it. Now, there is nothing wrong with any of this, as the Bible allows for drinking of alcohol in moderation. However, what the Bible tells us is sin is when we are drunk or when we lose control of ourselves when inebriated. Noah drank too much and became drunk. Some have tried to excuse Noah and say he didn't know there was alcohol in the grape juice. But the text indicated that he knew that what he drank was wine and drank to the point of becoming drunk. In his drunken state, he lost self-control. The man who was described as a righteous man who walked with God for some reason, became drunk and took off all of his clothes and fell asleep in his tent fully naked. This should serve as a stark reminder that even the most righteous person can fall into sin if we are not careful. This sin of drunkenness will cause a chain reaction that will lead to a curse. Now let's read on in verses 22 to 23. And Ham the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Apparently, Ham happened to enter his father's tent and saw his father naked. Instead of covering him up, thereby showing respect and dignity, he instead told his brothers, of their father's condition mockingly. What Ham did was wrong 
because he dishonored his father and made light of his father's compromised condition, showing that his morality was also questionable. His two other brothers did what was right, and when they heard about the nakedness of their father, walked in backwards into the tent and with a garment covered up their father so they and others wouldn't look at their father's nakedness. Now look with me at verses 24 to 27. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Then he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. The Bible says when Noah woke up and found out what had happened, he prophesied a curse on Ham's descendants through his son Canaan and blessed the descendants of Shem and Japheth. Now you may say it's not fair that the son Canaan got cursed for the actions of his father Ham. But that's not what's happening here. In a prophetic role, Noah announced divine judgment on Canaan's future descendants for their future sinful ways, which started with Ham's sinful act. Historically, we see that the Canaanites were evil and wicked, and God would use Shem's future descendants, the Israelites, to conquer the Canaanites under Joshua. Now, let me just note that there is no biblical basis to use this prophetic oracle by Noah to justify slavery of any sorts. Some have done this, unfortunately. While descendants of Ham did historically settle mainly in Africa, this prophecy dealt specifically with Ham's descendants through Canaan, and it was part of God's divine judgment. This oracle does not justify the slavery of African people. But what is clearly seen here is the principle that God blesses those who act rightly and righteously and curses and disciplines those who do not do what is right. It was the same way that God operated before the flood, and it would be the same way God operated after the flood. Those who act rightly and righteously would be blessed. Those who do not do what is right would be cursed and disciplined. Now let's take a look finally at verses 28 and 29. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Here we're told that Noah lived to the ripe old age of 950 years old, 300 years after the great flood. He would have lived to tell an eyewitness history and account of the story of the flood to many generations of his descendants. Now from these verses, putting it all together, we see our third biblical principle, biblical principle number three. God values holiness and blesses those who live in holiness. Therefore, do what is right. God values holiness and blesses those who live in holiness. Therefore, do what is right. My friends, sin never leads to anything positive or beneficial, only to God's discipline as we see in the story. Even something seemingly innocuous as the sin of drunkenness can lead to a prophetic curse in this case or lead to the death of others if you drive while intoxicated, resulting in jail time for you. Sin is never harmless. It often escalates and affects you and others. But on the flip side, those who choose to value holiness as God does and strive to do the right things will be blessed by God. With such stark results, why wouldn't we want to choose to live in holiness, especially in this sinful generation, in order to be blessed by God? The choice is ours. Be blessed or be disciplined. My friends, when you see a rainbow, 
What does it remind you of? What values does it encourage you to embrace, accept, and live out? The world has associated secular values to the rainbow, but as followers of Christ, perhaps we can associate the values of life, truth, and holiness with the rainbow as God intended. Life because there would be no more death through a global flood, and now eternal life is available through Jesus. Truth because God keeps His promises, so His words are always true. And holiness because the flood came because of man's wickedness, but God gave man an opportunity to live in holiness, to be blessed by Him, enabled through His Son, Jesus. So remember these biblical principles. Number one, God values every human life, therefore we should embrace a culture of life and share the gospel. Number two, God values truth, for His words are true, and He keeps His promises, therefore we should also speak the truth. Number three, God values holiness and blesses those who live in holiness, therefore do what is right. My friends, the next time you see a rainbow, be reminded to live out life, truth, and holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your words. Thank You for reminding us of the true meaning of the rainbow. We see in the rainbow Your love and grace to save a wicked world. And how wonderful it is to know that You keep Your promises, and for that we fully rely upon You. Father, I pray that Your people, the next time they see a rainbow, would love life, would speak truth, and would live out in holiness. Help us to live our lives in such a way that we impact this generation for You to bring people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would not be affected by the secular pull of this world, but live with confidence knowing that the truths of the Bible is how we are to live. Bless your people, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.